You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the precious gift of your gospel, but uh, moreover, the gift of your spirit who works and moves uh, through us and in us. And Lord, that you might even use us to turn the world upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is Reformation Sunday, and providentially, the lectionary would have us beginning uh, a walk through First Thessalonians. And we find ourselves in chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 8, that Craig read for us. And First Thessalonians 2 asks us the question, and helps us answer the question, rather, what does a gospel ministry look like? Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, in the area of Macedonia, which is northern Greece, uh, demonstrated an outpouring of God's Spirit that resulted in changed lives. And so if you want to learn a little bit more about what actually happened in Thessalonica, uh, you can jot down Acts 17 because that tells the story of what happened. And I'm going to read uh, that bit of it now just to give you some context of what the church in Thessalonica looks like. Now when they, that is Paul and his companions, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so what you see in Thessalonica are Paul and Silas, and they come into town and probably others with them. And Paul begins to preach in the synagogue, and God works in an extraordinary way in order to change people's lives. And so many people there in the synagogue and some of the leading women, they come to know the Lord Jesus, and their lives are changed. And it may seem extraordinary, but do we doubt that God could do the same thing today? He's done it so often, most notably to us who have experienced the new birth that is coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've experienced that, you've experienced the miracle that was experienced in Thessalonica, that the God who worked in that church 
almost 2,000 years ago is the same God who promises that he can work in the same way today at the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Paul earlier on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Are those words that would describe our ministry here? Because those are words that describe every gospel ministry, every ministry that's committed to proclaiming the good news that God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, has lived the perfect life on our behalf, has died the death that we deserve in order that we might live and be forgiven and enter into a relationship with God and sin ultimately being defeated by God raising Jesus from the dead who now sits at the right hand of the Father in intercession for us. But where we see the Spirit moving, that's where we'll find resistance to be the greatest. Opposition should not be a surprise in gospel ministry. In fact, it should be expected. We already read that Paul experienced immediate opposition from the Jews that were in the synagogue. And I, I love how uh, Acts, Luke tells us in Acts, and then he got some men who were of the rabble. Put that on your business card, of the rabble. Uh, but he, he faced immediate opposition uh, from people there in uh, and around Thessalonica. And not only that, but we would find out later on that he was experiencing opposition from the Judaizers, the same situation that, it was, that the church in Galatia was experiencing of people coming in saying, you know, of course you're saved by grace, but here's kind of what you have to do to keep that grace going on in your lives. Here's how you have to behave as a Christian in order to secure God's favor and actually undermining the work of the gospel. And so when the gospel is being preached and God is changing lives, you can expect opposition to come immediately and as long as the gospel is being preached. And what Paul is experiencing here is, ironically, the universal truth that lies spread faster than truth. Have you ever found that? I don't know if you've been paying, to our, paying attention to politics these days, but lies spread a lot faster than truth. And that's never changed. It's always been that way. And because the gospel spread so fast in Thessalonica, people there assumed it must be a lie. It, it must be untrue. And so they began to impute false motives to Paul. And Paul said, our appeal does not spring from error or impunity, that is, or impurity, that's the lies that might be uh, the lying accusations against him, or any attempt to deceive. Uh, but we, uh, and we've not come to you with a pretext for greed, and God is our witness. There are false motives being imputed to Paul, and in the same way anybody who has said, the proclamation of the gospel is of paramount concern for the life of the church, have experienced the same thing. False accusations being laid at their feet, even after Paul, as the church began to grow throughout the Mediterranean, lies would spread. Already there in Acts, what was the lie that was told to the authorities in Thessalonica? They're going up against Caesar because they say there's another king, and his name is Jesus. 
And still later on, people would say, you know, those Christians, you know, they eat people. Now, where do they get that idea from? Well, they get together and they eat some guy's body and they drink his blood. They're cannibals. And even still today, I experience it time and time again where someone will say to me, well, you know, Christianity teaches. And I'll ask, where in the world did you hear that? And it's probably some book written by a clergy person. But it took hold because it was a lie. It was almost more readily believable than the truth. Lies don't really come up against much opposition, but truth does. And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with. But Paul understands that he's not to consider the praise of others, but in fact to be very wary of it. Doubt has been cast upon Paul's integrity and motives, as I've mentioned before. But you notice he has this little phrase in chapter 2, verses 3 and verse 5. He says, you know, brothers, you know, sisters, meaning I, I know that you're hearing this, but actually think back to what objectively happened, the truth of the matter. I, I've been, I'm being uh, cast as someone who's greedy, but was I greedy when I was amongst you? In fact, later on in this letter, Paul would say, uh, I did my own work. I made tents so that I didn't even have to rely on your financial support. D do you remember that? So when people say that I'm greedy, was I in fact greedy when I was among you? But Paul is experiencing what anybody who's involved in Christian ministry will experience. And I'm not just talking about full-time clergy or full-time ministry workers. I'm talking about full-time Christians. Your motives will be tested. What are you living for? Why is it that you're trying to share the gospel? Why is it that you're living the life that you're living? Some of us may be living the Christian life in order to secure the praise of other people. It might be, you know what, if I go to church, my spouse will just get off my back. Or you know what, when I'm around other Christians, I got to talk Christian talk. What are you living your life for? Some of us do live life for the praise of other people, whether that's because we're Christians or not. One of the uh, things that Paul, uh, Paul, listen to me, Frank Limehouse and I would, uh, would do is we'd tease one another when we thought so, they had preached a particularly good sermon. We would say to one another after the service, well, Frank, well, Andrew, I know the devil already told you this, but that was a good sermon. And many gospel workers can be motivated by the praise of others. And so why does Paul care about what others are saying? It's because if his integrity is undermined, the gospel is undermined. Because his ministry is being called into question, or his integrity is being called into question, everything that he's said and done is being called into question. And we've seen this throughout the history of the church, most notably with televangelists. You know, televangelists say one thing on TV and then uh, their lives are completely different. And so if these accusations against Paul are true, then why should we listen to anything that he has to say? Doesn't mean that Paul's a perfect man. 
But what it does mean is that the gospel has shaped his life and he's living a life above reproach, which honors the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's able to move forward in confidence in spite of the opposition, in spite of the accusations, because Paul is sure of his message, he's sure of his calling, and he's sure of God. You notice in chapter 2, verses 2 and 8, he uses this interesting phrase, the gospel of God. The gospel of God, not the gospel of Paul, not my opinion, not the gospel of Andrew, not even the gospel of Jesus, but the gospel of God. God himself has given Paul this message as if God spoke directly to Paul and said, this is the truth of the matter. It's not just a message for Christians. It's not just a message for a particular group of people, a particular race, a particular ethnicity, a particular culture, in a particular time, in a particular place. It's the universal message of salvation in Jesus Christ that is the gospel of God. It's God's word. And so Paul proclaims it because God said it. But Paul's also certain of his calling when he says in verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted by God. God himself has said, go. Just as he says to you and to me, go. Now, it may not be to northern Greece, although that wouldn't be that bad. You know, missionary to the Isle of Corfu would be pretty nice. But it may be to the end of your cubicle row. It may be to the end of your dining room table. It may be to the end of your cul-de-sac. Wherever it is, God's called you to go with his gospel. And that calling is sure and certain. And Paul is certain and sure of who God is. In verse 2, he says, Though we'd been shamefully treated, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Boldness in who? confidence in who? God. Because he knew that God went before him, that God was with him. And he was certain of who God was, that he would never leave him nor forsake him. He had a full and certain confidence that God was in control, come what may, even if it meant being beaten with rods and sent to prison in Philippi. When God gets a hold of your life, you are given an assurance, not just in the next world, an assurance that you will be with your Father who is in heaven, or when Jesus comes back, that we'll be with him in this new earth, but we're also given an assurance in this world too. God gives perseverance to his saints. It's not that if we persevere, then we are his saints. No, because you're a saint of God, because God has laid claim on you, he gives you perseverance. When Luther was willing to stand for the gospel and the truth of God's word, he was willing to do that even if it meant being thrown out of the church, which he was. Our own English reformers, Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley, they were willing to stand for the gospel and the truth of God's word, even when it meant being burned at the stake. They'd been given over 
to something wholly different. And it had gotten hold of their lives in such a way that they feared not the loss of this world, but they feared the loss of God. And it wasn't just a matter of an opinion. It wasn't just, hey, this is a nice thing that I do. Uh, I want to be in ministry to people. I want to hold people's hands. But they understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the power unto salvation. And woe be to, uh, unto us if we do not preach this gospel. And so precious is it, and so life-changing is it, that we're willing even to be cast out of a church and even tied to a stake and burned alive. It's that serious. And when you've experienced that in your own life, you realize the significance and the depth and the importance of it and that you give your life over to it. It doesn't mean that you're not afraid. Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, they were all afraid when they went to the stake. Luther was afraid when he went to the Diet of Worms to make his stand, here I can do no other. But they knew that God was with them and they had an assurance not in the next world but in this world as well. And they also realized, as well as Paul, that gospel ministry is never in vain. It's never in vain. It's always worth it, no matter the cost. When I was coming along, I had a pastor friend who really sunk a lot into my ministry, and he was a lovely man. But he told me one time, he said, Andrew, when you go into pastoral ministry, never get too close to your people. He's talking about you. Never get close to these people. Well, what was he saying? He was saying that when you're in ministry, if you get, it already means heartbreak. It already means hurt. And if you invest your life in these other people, then it's going to be compounded exponentially. But look what Paul says in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you would become very dear to us. That's what ministry is about. It's not just the proclamation of the gospel, but giving ourselves to one another, about living life together, about pouring into people, not caring so much about our own dreams, our own ambitions, our own wishes, but actually being willing to sacrifice those in order to pour your life into somebody else. And of course, it hurts. And why does it hurt? Because the people who actually have the power to hurt us are the people that we love. You know, when you're on 280 and someone cuts you off, that might ruin your commute but it's probably not going to ruin your life. But when somebody you love says or does something, it cuts you straight to the bone. Growing up, we're told sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie. You know, the wounds that you incur from sticks and stones, you'll get over those in a matter of weeks. But the words and the names that are thrown upon us, those wounds can last a lifetime, especially if you're putting yourself out there and willing to give yourself over. Because when Jesus did that, what happened? They killed him. But this is the key to gospel ministry, not just the proclamation, 
but that we would give ourselves over to one another. And finally, I just want to note the simplicity of the ministry that Paul had there in Acts 17 in Thessalonica and how he describes it here in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. What did they do? They preached the gospel and they gave themselves over to one another. Well, that's much simpler than what we do here at the Advent. The question is, is the gospel enough? Does it need dressing up? Are the programs that a church would run, are they the end or are they the means to bring people to know Jesus Christ and to grow them deeper in faith? It's worth us just taking a step back, especially during this time of quarantine, and asking, well, if God can work through the simplest of ministry of the proclamation of the gospel and giving ourselves over to one another, why aren't we doing that? Why do we feel the need to overly complicate everything? We see in this simple thing the effectiveness of their ministry. And I just want to close. I know I've gone way over, but that's all right. It's a beautiful morning. With uh, what Martin Luther said brought about the Reformation. When someone asked him, how did you do it? What, what was your angle? What were your tactics? How did you bring the world to its knees and the gospel forth? And this great, amazing thing happened. Well, this is what he said about the word. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I oppose those things that stood in the way of the gospel, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened those obstacles to the gospel. I did nothing. The word did everything. Well, that's what Paul's saying here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Have a beer with your friends, if that's your prerogative. Pour your life into them and proclaim the gospel and to sit back, and as we pour out the word, watch God by his Holy Spirit turn that water that we're pouring out into the wine of salvation. The word does the work through the power of the Spirit. That's the hallmark of gospel ministry. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this ministry that you've entrusted us with. And it's an overwhelming responsibility, Lord, but we pray that we would know that you go before us and that you're with us. And Lord, on this day that we would not rest on our laurels, whether that be Paul or a reformer or whoever, Lord, uh, but that we would understand that it is our task to take the gospel uh, that changes lives and secures our relationship with you uh, into future generations. And so, God, by your grace, let it be so amongst us as it was in Paul and in the days of the Reformation. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.